For Roundtable, November 8th, 1996. Kansas, but uh, presently he's at uh, Rutgers University on a sabbatical. Uh, he's the author of five books, including the two books that I mentioned tonight, uh, People, The People's Contest and The Presidency of Abraham Lincoln. He's recognized as a distinguished uh, scholar on the study of the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. And uh, some of the reasons why I like his books so much is the fact that he makes you think. He's uh, very provocative. He's very interesting. He uh, points out, for example, that the economic uh, aspects about the uh, Civil War uh, are really what uh, are the driving forces behind our present economic system. And uh, I also have heard him uh, make a presentation before. And one of the interesting things he made in that presentation was the fact that uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, very seldom discussed the word democracy. I think one time he referred to it, and uh, he has, Dr. Paladin has some very interesting things to say about that. Um, he is, um, as I say, he's a recognized expert on the uh, study of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, his uh, speech tonight is on Abraham Lincoln and uh, his, uh, the use of propaganda in peace and uh, during wartime. So I'm very honored to uh, introduce to you uh, Dr. Philip Shaw Paladin. Thank you, Larry. I'm always delighted to visit Chicago. I've done so many times. It's one of my favorite places, and having had a chance to talk to Elmer Gertz tonight, it's even more of a favorite place than it has been before. Um, I'm also grateful that you think enough of my work that you would like to have me lessen, lecture to you while you digest your dinner. Uh, I hope this improves your digestion. This talk is about two things. Most talks about history are. It's about Abraham Lincoln and propaganda in the Civil War era, and it's about the modern world, the political environment of today. Several ideas have come up in the last couple days that seem very much connected to the ideas in the talk. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't had time to put them together to integrate them with the talk, but it seemed to me they were relevant, and I wanted to talk to them a little bit right now. Yesterday, for example, on the National Public Radio Morning Edition, there was a commentary by Baxter Black, who is described as a cowboy poet and former large animal veterinarian. Uh, after listening to his comment, I suspect he's still in the business of making large animals more healthy than they were before. Black's idea was that the old idea, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is nonsense. Words matter a lot. They can change how people think of themselves and what they become. Consider the impact of good job. You can do it. Did you do that all by yourself? And two from my own life, everybody has hopefully more than two. Gladys Leonard, my Glendale High School social studies teacher, once said, use that brain. Edward Davidson, professor of English, University of Illinois, once said, you got that just right. Other words also have impact not again. Why do you always screw up? That's no way to do it. 
Somehow those words change things. Ideas about campaigning, I think, also change things. Some things in the recent campaign reminded me of what Black said. There were a lot of words in the campaign. Don't trust my opponent. My opponent is an extremist. You can trust me. Jane Roe, John Doe, care about your feelings. Well, while candidates are talking about themselves and their opponents, I think they're also talking about us. They're talking about the public. And they're telling us what they think of us by what they say and how they say it. They tell us how smart they think we are. They tell us whether they think we are defined by our fears or by our hopes. Negative campaigning does not speak well of us. It tells us what politicians think of us. And what they seem to think is that we are defined by what we are afraid of. Negative campaigning says that we will vote on the basis of what we fear, not what we hope. That we are guided by our nightmares and not our dreams. By contrast, positive campaigning seems to me to say that candidates think well of us. That they think we are best appealed to by our hopes, by our knowledge, and by our understanding. Positive campaigning seems by contrast with negative campaigning to bring out the best in us, to make us better people, to say, use that brain. You can do it. You can understand. If I could send a message to the leaders, our politicians, and our media, I would say these things. Don't treat us as though we are fear-filled. Don't treat us as if we are defined by our hatreds. Don't treat us like we're incapable of thinking. Don't treat us like we're children, like we're 12 years old. Do treat us like we are decent, mature, thoughtful, responsible adults who can cope with reality. Every time you talk, you let us know what you think of us. Let's talk a little bit about Abraham Lincoln and propaganda, propaganda of war and peace. I'm going to start off with a quotation from Walter Lippmann in 1922. Lippmann said, it is no longer possible to believe in the original dogma of democracy, that the knowledge needed for the management of human affairs comes up spontaneously from the human heart. Where we act on that theory, we expose ourselves to self-deception and to forms of persuasion we cannot verify. Now we've just completed the 52nd presidential election in our nation's history, and as with the 51 before it, it has been somewhat of a defining moment. As candidates describe their goals and hopes as they explained what America was capable of, maybe we learned more about who we are and what we stand for. Certainly we've learned what the candidates think of us. And I believe that as they explain their programs and describe the nation they see, they help us define who we are. But we need to recognize that such definitions are not necessarily full and complete pictures. They are not necessarily accurate pictures of what the nation is and can be. These definitions are created by men and women who are giving us their opinion about who we are 
and what our ideals should be. At times, their pictures of who we are can be wrong, limiting, distracting us with the wrong self-image and from better paths. There may be better opinions, better definitions of who we are. And it's important that we have the best possible definitions to bring out the best that is within us. Sometimes when the present somehow falls short of doing that, I think we need to look backward, learn from better definers, better instructors, and better opinion makers. So tonight I want to look backward a bit to discover how the people of the Civil War era defined what the nation was and who its people might be. And to do that, the first step is to understand how much of that defining was a self-conscious effort by leaders to persuade the people to accept the leader's definition. These leaders were engaged in self-conscious efforts to create and to mold public opinion. In short, they were engaged in propaganda. My focus is on the efforts of Northerners, especially Lincoln, to shape public opinion during the Civil War era, and I want to do four things. First, to talk about propaganda in American society, and of course, to define the term. Then, to explain the value of talking about propaganda in the Civil War era. Then, to show how Northern opinion makers propagandized during the war. And finally, and most importantly, I want to discuss Abraham Lincoln, who deserves much more than any recent American leader the term the great communicator. I will argue that Lincoln was self-consciously a propagandist. Sometimes his activities in that realm revealed a dark side. But ultimately, Lincoln provided propaganda that shaped an American society that was far better able to achieve its goals than it had been. Now, it may seem surprising to talk about Lincoln as a propagandist. He seems so much the quintessential good and great man, so much the embodiment of what the nation and its polity are at its best, that we Americans may find it difficult to link Lincoln with a term that carries many negative connotations. But the problem is not just applying it to Lincoln. It is becoming aware of the vast amount of propaganda in this nation. It is becoming aware of the fact that the United States has probably been the most propagandized nation in the world, at least from the beginning of the 19th century. Now, this is something that may be hard to accept about ourselves. For at the foundation of our democratic faith is the idea that we as a people are capable of understanding our national needs, able to weigh and assess the options presented to us, that we, the people, can make objective, rational judgments based on a weighing of the facts in light of self-evident truths. Isn't that sort of what the talk show phenomena is all about? That we should listen to these people because they have insights, understandings of the facts. But if we discover that we're a propagandized and manipulated people, we have to face some very serious questions about what's going on when we the people speak. Our effort to confront and understand the nature and power of propaganda is impeded not just by Lincoln's goodness and our own self-image, but also by Lincoln's deception on this point. Part of being a propagandist in the United States involves denying it, and Lincoln downplayed his own influence. He would say that, quote, public opinion is everything in this country, then quote, and thus obscure his own responsibility for creating that public opinion. 
his claim that events have controlled me, again pointed the finger in the direction of outside forces and not on Lincoln himself for defining what those events meant. Denying that one is a propagandist, of course, supports the vision we have of ourselves as independent and rational voters. It encourages a faith that the people themselves are decent and wise enough to generate their own solutions to the crises they face. But citizens should never accept such denials, no matter how flattering, no matter where they come from. We need to understand and let our leaders know we understand that they, as well as we, are responsible for the form and content of political discussion. If we can treat Lincoln this way, no other politician can escape challenge and scrutiny. All countries, totalitarian and democratic and constitutional, use propaganda. And it is more important in a democracy, which relies predominantly on persuasion, on shaping opinion, than in a totalitarian state, which can coerce its citizens. As Walter Lippmann knew as far back as 1922, the so-called omnicompetent citizen making rational, objective judgments based simply on the facts, that is a myth, perhaps imperative in theoretical democracies, but non-existent in practice. As Lippmann said, we do not first see and then define, we define first and then we see. A democratic polity demands definers people who give shape to our feelings and impressions, people who give meaning for our facts. It demands propagandists who will shape the ways that we think about means and ends. Our choice is not between, between propagandists and non-propagandists. It is between those who act for the best values and opportunities in a society and those who constrict opportunities and appeal to our worst prejudices. The study of propaganda thus allows self-conscious study of how leaders define and mold the nation. Lincoln will claim our attention now, but in looking at his actions, we learn that all of our leaders are responsible for, not just to, public opinion. Now it's time for a definition. What do we mean when we speak of propaganda? Most authorities accept this definition the deliberate attempt by the few to influence the attitudes and behavior of the many by the manipulation of symbolic communication. Please note there is no moral judgment in that definition. Propaganda here is not good or bad. It is an attempt to shape people's perceptions. If we begin with a neutral definition, we gain the ability to analyze before we judge. We can ask, for example, whether and how the great and good Lincoln propagandized without immediately denying that such a great man could do so questionable a thing. I want us here to keep that neutral definition in mind because my focus at first is more on how Lincoln and his age did it than whether it was wrong. We'll get to the moral question later. When we get there, though, we're going to need a moral standard. So we need to note that there are degrees and types of propaganda. Writers have distinguished between white, gray, and black propaganda. White propaganda is generally overt as to its source. It stays reasonably close to the truth. 
and it associates the sender with positive ideas and goals. Gray is more obscure as to the source. A speaker may hide who she or he really is, and the information used may not be accurate. And black propaganda is deceptive in every aspect. It lies about its source and the subjects it talks about. These distinctions rest on a moral idea. A fundamental question is, who is benefiting from this propaganda? Dark propaganda is characterized by the fact that it is consciously employed by the propagandist to serve his or her own purposes. The audience's wishes, ideals, and goals may be irrelevant, except insofar as the propagandist wants to know which of their buttons to push. The moral standard in judging propaganda rests on the philosopher Immanuel Kant's ideal that people should be treated as ends in themselves rather than as means to somebody else's ends. The immoral propagandist does not treat the audience as people with their own ends, with their own capacities. He does not treat them as capable or worthy of rational discussion. He tries to produce effects rather than seeking agreement. The dark propagandist not only hides his motive, he tries to influence people rather than to reason with them. He treats them as things to be influenced rather than humans to be communicated with. And he does not describe reality. He tries to deceive so that people will see the world as he wants them to. Keeping these distinctions in mind, it's time to turn to the Civil War. By now you may be thinking I'm sort of like General McClellan. Lincoln said of McClellan, he spends all his time getting ready to begin. I am ready, <laughs> and I will now begin. The Civil War was a war of words as well as of weapons and men. And public opinion <clears throat> was the target of both. Both Lincoln and Jefferson Davis knew that they had to build and sustain morale in order to raise armies and continue the struggle. They had to define what their nations were fighting for, defend their governments against opposition behind the lines as well as on the battlefield. And generals knew that they had to fight and win battles according to popular timetables as well as their own timetables. McClellan's obstinance on this point helped cost him his command. Grant and Sherman's awareness of this fact ensured their continuing support by President and Congress. Sherman especially was conscious that the public North and South was watching and that his target was opinion and not just rebel warriors. To see his activities in the context of propaganda helps provide a much more balanced picture of him than prevails in much writing. Sherman's most common image is captured in the vision of his march to the sea, a vision so horrible that at least two writers have linked that march with the war in Vietnam. Certainly some of Sherman's rhetoric was terrifying. When he commanded in Memphis, Sherman threatened to shoot anyone who tried to ambush his troops quoting Sherman now, to secure the safety of the navigation of the Mississippi River, I would slay millions. On that point, I am not only insane, but mad. For every bullet shot at a steamboat, I would shoot a thousand thirty-pound perros into even helpless towns. But Sherman was barking, not biting. He never executed his threat. And he agreed with Grant that Union armies could also gain by examples of leniency and restraint on the march. 
When Sherman had his well-known debate with John Bell Hood before Atlanta, both men knew they were speaking to the whole country, not just man to man or general to general. Hood protested that Sherman's decision to expel civilians from Atlanta, quote, transcends in studied and inglorious cruelty all acts of war ever brought to my attention in the dark history of war, sir. And Hood sent his letter to the Southern newspapers as well as to Sherman. And Sherman returned the favor. When he replied to Hood, he recited cases where rebel armies had expelled Unionists, included a lecture on who had started the war by attacking the finest government in the world, and then threatened that he would be unrelenting in war, but when peace came, quote, you may call on me for anything. And Sherman sent his letter to northern newspapers that he knew would be read by the enemy as well as friends in the north. It was a propaganda blitzkrieg that inspired northerners and frightened Dixie. There was also, of course, more obvious propaganda. The Civil War produced a huge outpouring of pamphlets both promoting and opposing the Union war effort. Both parties, the Democrat and the Republican parties, engaged in a pamphlet war, but I want to talk on the, about the Republican propaganda now. Led by two organizations, Philadelphia's Board of Publications of the Union League and New York City's Loyal Publication Society, administrative supporters sent out millions of copies of nearly 200 different pamphlets defending Republican Party policy. Other organizations sent articles to hundreds of newspapers throughout the country. And these pamphlets and broadsides circulated wherever there was public opinion to be shaped. The publications reflected the diversity of the society the authors are trying to persuade. If you were an Irish American, you probably got, got treated to Daniel O'Connor's 1843 attack on slavery. If you were a German-American or a Dutch-American, you got to read Lincoln Odo McClellan in your own language. Mechanics and manual laborers were warned in Loyal Publication Society pamphlet number 30, if the rebels win, working men and women will be treated as slaves. One of my favorite pamphlets is entitled, A Few Words in Behalf of Loyal Ladies of the United States by One of Themselves. The pamphlet urged the loyal ladies to sustain the war efforts as decent and virtuous Yankee women. It also told them that they should shun the example of brutal Confederate women who, like the Parisian women gathered around the guillotine, called for blood and asked their soldiers to bring home a Yankee hand or a thumb at least. Now, atrocity stories are part of the campaign to rally people around the flag. After the first battle of Bull Run, the New York Herald told of ambulances being intentionally fired on, of wounded men purposely trampled by rebel horsemen. The New York World spoke of helpless prisoners stripped and tortured. And when Edward Everett spoke at Gettysburg, he used some of his two hours to accuse the Confederates of atrocities. As late as September of 1864, the Chicago Tribune filled a whole page with varied atrocities tales. The pamphlets joined a huge stream of editorials and news articles in the thousands of newspapers around the country in explaining and cajoling and inspiring and provoking politics and opinions. Soldiers in the field, editors at home, voters in every election, in short, every citizen, every person in the most literate and politically vital society in the world had access to some communication which told him or her 
how to think, how to vote, and what to do to bring victory to the cause. While all parties recognize the importance of persuasion in reinforcing materials and men, and while atrocity stories had their day, it is striking how much wartime propaganda was focused away from the horrors of war. Many of the pamphlets, for example, contain constitutional arguments that justified presidential power to emancipate the slaves, or to fight secession, or to suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. There were 50 pamphlets that came out and debated the question as to whether Lincoln had the right to suspend the privilege of the writ. And political parties used the pamphlets to charge each other with dangerous doctrine. Democrats warned of tyranny, the suppression of civil liberty, especially of miscegenation. Matter of fact, Democrats invented the word miscegenation for use in Civil War electoral politics. They put out pamphlets with a picture of Abraham Lincoln with devil's horns and entitled him Abraham Africanus. Democrats played the race card consistently throughout the Civil War era. Republicans predominantly accused their foes of disloyalty causing needless deaths or inspiring continued rebel resistance. But a lot of this rhetoric was similar in many ways to pre-war charge and counter-charge, that Republicans were racial egalitarians and consolidators, the meddling party is what Horatio Seymour called them, and Democrats were described as having sold out to the slaveocracy, being obstructionist to progress, so ironically, in the midst of the war, the underlying tone of this debate is pretty much business as usual. Now let's turn to Abraham Lincoln. No one had a greater responsibility for defining and directing democracy than the president. And Abraham Lincoln may have been the most qualified man in the nation for the job. For over a quarter century, as both lawyer and politician, Lincoln had been in the persuading business in the most democratic society in the world. And what especially has prepared him was the fact that Lincoln had a particular attitude about and relationship toward the democracy that Andrew Jackson helped spawn in the 1820s. It was an attitude which said that the people needed to be led and not just followed. There's an old saying that says, no one is, pretty, is too sure who discovered water or pretty sure it wasn't a fish. Lincoln is so consistently linked in public and scholarly thought with democracy that few people have wondered what he meant by the term. A recent collection of Lincoln's writings intended for a popular audience is called Lincoln on Democracy. His most well-known phrase is arguably government of the people, by the people, and for the people from the Gettysburg Address. The most respected of the older Lincoln scholars, J.G. Randall, mused on the meaning of that phrase by wondering if Lincoln emphasized the people or the prepositions of the people, by the people, for the people. Benjamin Thomas, another great older Lincoln scholar, called the Civil War a war for democracy. And yet the most recent collection of Lincoln scholarship contains eight meager references to the word democracy in Lincoln's writings. And Mark Neely's authoritative Abraham Lincoln Encyclopedia refers readers to a short discussion of representative government. In that brief discussion, however, Neely does insist, quote, on Lincoln's democratic faith that the common man did not need elites to govern him. I wonder.
There are many reasons to wonder if Lincoln was as devoted to pure democracy as that statement suggests. The former president is pretty quiet on what he means. While Lincoln spoke extensively about the meanings of liberty and equality and government, he provided posterity with a 33-word definition of democracy. Quote, as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. This expresses my idea of democracy. Whatever differs from this to the extent of the difference is no democracy, Lincoln said. That's an intriguing definition, but it explains very little about Lincoln's understanding of or hopes for democracy. And Lincoln's background does not suggest unqualified admiration for popular rule. Lincoln grew up in the world where Andrew, of Andrew Jackson, and there were things about it that greatly troubled him. Andrew Jackson had proclaimed his faith in the people by saying, it's quoting Jackson, never for a moment believe that the great body of the citizens can deliberately intend to do wrong. End of the quote by Jackson. But by the time Lincoln entered politics, it was hard to ignore the wrongs, real and potential, of the citizens. In 1835 and 1840, Alexis de Tocqueville published his two volumes of Democracy in America, and he warned about the tyranny of the majority. Andrew Jackson was less than a year out of the presidency when Lincoln cataloged in his first major speech the dangers of mob rule. He warned about Jackson-like tyranny, and he asked that respect for the laws and not for popular will be made, in Lincoln's word, the political religion of the nation. It is not surprising that Lincoln joined the Whig and not Jackson's Democratic Party. Lincoln also quarreled with Stephen Douglas's advocacy of popular sovereignty in determining whether slavery or freedom should exist in the territories. Lincoln asserted instead that the Constitution's solution to territorial government was rule by Congress, not the more direct rule by the people in the territories. When Confederate states seceded, they claimed the right of the people in those states to determine who should be their rulers. But Lincoln answered with a legal argument showing that the constitutional system for changing government was primary. I think there's very good reason to believe that the word Lincoln emphasized in the Gettysburg Address was not the people or the prepositions. It was government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Lincoln seems not to have believed that simply trusting popular will was the ultimate answer to the meaning of the nation. He believed in legal and constitutional restraints and in the guidance that these institutions could provide for the people. Despite an occasional bow in the direction of simply registering the voters' wishes, Lincoln believed much more strongly in the importance of shaping and not just following public opinion. In his major speeches, he emphasized restraints that ranged from praising all-conquering mind, to making reverence for the laws, the political religion of the nation, to spending over a third of his first inaugural explaining the constitutionality of his position on secession. Lincoln, of course, did speak of majority rule, but it was majority rule guided by a constitutional process. Lincoln's frequent desire to escape the pressures of public opinion does not mean for a moment that he thought he could be 
that he could just toss it off or be insensitive to it. He knew that even as he needed to escape public opinion, he also needed to shape it. Throughout the war, Lincoln constantly manipulated and gave direction to public opinion. The most well-known example is his response to Horace Greeley's prayer of 20 millions. In August of 1862, the powerful editor of the New York Tribune scolded Lincoln for his laggard emancipation policy. He scolded him for reversing the proclamations of Generals Fremont and Hunter, which freed slaves. He scolded him for upholding generals who opposed emancipation. And Lincoln's answer to Greeley is as famous as almost anything else he wrote. What I do about emancipation, Lincoln said, I do to save the Union. And if I could save the Union by freeing all, some, or none of the slaves, I would do any of those things. That's a paraphrase of Lincoln's answer. Hmm? Now, some authors have insisted that this shows Lincoln's reluctance to emancipate, his greater devotion to the Union than to emancipation. However, when considered as propagandizing, as consciously shaping public opinion, Lincoln's answer takes on new meaning. Lincoln knew that Greeley's readers numbered in the hundreds of thousands, and he was not writing a letter to Horace Greeley alone. Furthermore, Lincoln had privately decided, at least a month before even answering Greeley's letter, to free a very large sum of the slaves, which is above two and a half million of the slaves that were still under rebel control. He decided to do that back in June and July, and he's answering Greeley on the 18th of August. In addition, Lincoln had already gone public in March with a plan to have border states emancipate their slaves. Lincoln's reply to Greeley was a form of propaganda, I believe. It was designed to let the northern people know that when the slaves were free, they would be free in service of a deeply treasured, bloodily purchased ideal. Liberty and union were being made one and inseparable. Lincoln also propagandized on the civil liberties front. He took special pains to explain in speeches and several public letters why he suspended the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus and kept on doing it. He spent many hours on public letters to New York and Ohio Democrats explaining the stakes and why the Constitution justified what he had done. Lincoln was shaping a vision of what was at stake and what the constitutional system meant. He was keeping the constitutional debate going throughout the conflict, propagandizing to persuade the people that their constitutional system was adequate to survive and prosecute a war. Now, Lincoln was not only propagandizing in a general sense, Lincoln is extraordinarily sensitive to timing. He, of course, waited for the victory at Antietam before issuing the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. But in civil liberties areas, Lincoln acutely watched events as well. Lincoln had especially been under attack for violations of civil liberty ever since the war began. But in May of 1863, this May of 1863, he received a very heavy and well-publicized attack on his policies. But Abraham Lincoln did not answer this attack in May. He held off replying to his critics against his attack on civil liberties until June of 1863. Question, where was Robert E. Lee in late June of 1863? 
Robert E. Lee was crossing the Pennsylvania border. One of the reasons that Lee was crossing the Pennsylvania border and he was heading in that direction was that he believed, as did Jefferson Davis, that there was a lot of public opinion in the North that was in favor of the Confederacy, and if Lee would just show up, those people would support the Confederacy and Lee's army. It is in this environment that Lincoln answers his critics on civil liberties, and he answers with a stunningly chilling view of what is allowable and what is not allowable. This is Lincoln. The man who stands by and says nothing when the peril of his government is discussed cannot be misunderstood. If not hindered, he is sure to help the enemy, much more if he talks ambiguously, talks for his country with buts and ifs and ands. Now, one of the striking things about this statement is that Lincoln, in fact, arrested very few people for protesting against the war. No one that I know of was arrested for being silent. Lincoln allowed Democratic critics a huge amount of latitude to call him a tyrant, a dictator, and lots of other things much less attractive than that. But Lincoln knew the value of pressing the button of restraint in a time of crisis. He knew the value of allowing people to wonder what the limits of dissent might be. Words of propaganda as well as the guns at Gettysburg were part of the Union arsenal. But Lincoln may have worked even more broadly than in his well-publicized open letters to critics and friends. In election campaigns, there is evidence to suggest the president quietly used his influence to implement both dark and bright forces of Republican Party campaigning. Evidence suggests that Lincoln was playing a key role in organizing or at least nurturing pro-union propaganda organizations. The most, the major instrument of union propaganda was the Union League. Organized in the early days of the war in the border states, by 1862 these leagues had fallen into lethargy in the aftermath of democratic elections in successes in 1862. But by early 1863, the Union Leagues are coming to life again. And people all around Lincoln are playing important roles in bringing Union Leagues to life. The governor of Illinois, Richard Yates, was especially active in reviving the League, faced as he was with the Democratic majority in the state legislature as of January of 1863. He put the authority and resources of the governor's office as well as the Republican Party behind the League, and he helped to send agents to other Midwestern states. And Lincoln's old friends and associates began to appear in the local leagues. The Springfield branch gained membership and influence when James C. Conkling, a personal friend of Lincoln, became president of the local branch. Republican governors throughout the Midwest began to use the League to counteract Democratic legislatures and opposition. Indiana's governor, Oliver Morton, organized his state league from the top down. He got a big gift from a banker. He subsidized recruiting efforts, and the organization soon spread all over the state. And you could see a similar pattern in Iowa, Michigan, as League popularity grew. Illinois alone boasted over 140,000 members of the Union League 
by late 1863. Meanwhile, in the East, there's another Union League being put together, and this Union League is very, very close to where Abraham Lincoln can watch them. Under the leadership of James Edwards of Illinois, this group began to build bridges outside the capital city, organize a national council, began to issue charters to leagues that neighboring states were organizing. Illini Edwards contacted the Midwestern group, and the two planned a national convention that met in Cleveland in mid-May of 1863. When it met, it was almost a Lincoln party. A Lincoln party party. It was dominated by people very close to the president. John Forney, editor of two newspapers in Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., a confidant of Lincoln, attended. Postmaster General Montgomery Blair gave the opening address. Secretary of the Treasury Chase sent some of his lieutenants to the meeting. Secretary of War Stanton had a man there. Edwards was chosen national president and one of Lincoln's personal secretaries. William O. Stoddard became corresponding secretary of this national organization of union leagues. The National Council of this new organization made Washington, D.C. its headquarters. And all nine of the national officers were also from the district. State councils still retained autonomy, but the network of their activity reached to Washington where Lincoln could watch. By 1864, the Union Leagues would play a major role in securing the renomination of Abraham Lincoln to the presidency. Something is going on, and Lincoln's fingers on it, but not quite his fingerprints. A man wears gloves an awful lot when he's working. But something is going on to energize, organize propaganda activities in behalf of the Union cause, and Lincoln has his eyes open to it. Now at the local level, at state levels of political organization, while the Union Leagues operate at a rather high level, at the lower level, at the state level, there's a lot of dirty negative campaigning going on. The major thing that Republicans are doing is to say that every Democrat is somehow operating under sealed instructions from Jefferson Davis. Every act of the Democratic Party is described as subversive of the war effort, and almost every Democrat is conceived of as a damn Democrat. That is, in fact, one word, damn Democrat. Now, Lincoln might have been able, and I still don't under, quite understand the, the, the way the political organizations work in this system, but Lincoln might have been able to restrain some of that rhetoric, but he doesn't. He keeps his hands off it. And when the state legislatures and when state, that's not state legislatures, state political parties begin to circulate word of conspiracies of the knights, of the, what, the, the golden knights. What is, my, what is my word here? The knights of the golden circle, that's right. When the Democrats, or when the Republican Party starts circulating that the Knights of the Golden Circle are planning to set fire to Chicago, are planning to, re, to uh, break down the walls of the uh, prison camps and release thousands and thousands of Confederate prisoners, none of which 
seem to be true, Lincoln does nothing to stop that sort of, what, dishonesty. That may be a dark side of Lincoln's propaganda efforts, that he kept his hands off of that level of dishonesty and that level of negative campaigning. Now, it seems clear that Lincoln was a propagandist in the ways that he manipulated public opinion and that that disposition grew from his belief that the people needed guidance and restraint. But I've said that Lincoln was a good propagandist. He shaped public opinion and the polity itself in ways that permitted it and the people who were ultimately the foundation of it to advance toward their best ideals in liberating ways. Let's talk about Lincoln, the good propagandist. You see that best in the pre-war years, when Lincoln debates the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Roger Taney, and Stephen Arnold Douglas of Illinois. Both Douglas and Taney were intensifying the disunion struggle, intensifying the crisis by their support for the expansion of slavery. Justice Taney in Dred Scott, in the Dred Scott case, said that slavery could expand into all U.S. territories, and he said that black Americans could not be citizens of the United States. More dangerous than that, he insisted that the Constitution supported these positions. Stephen Douglas endorsed the expansion of slavery, too. His Kansas-Nebraska Act repealed the Missouri Compromise and let slavery into a million miles of formerly free soil. More dangerous than that, Douglas insisted that the ideals of democracy supported that expansion. The people, Douglas said, could create territorial governments based on slavery if they wanted to, for the people's will was sovereign. Now, if people were persuaded by Tawney and Douglas then two of the most fundamental institutions of the nation, the Constitution and democracy, proclaimed the United States a pro-slavery nation. And racial intolerance was also endorsed, and to democracy. There were dark moments in Lincoln's propaganda. At times, he tried to reach his audience by calming and thus sustaining their biases. In debates with Stephen Douglas, Lincoln did tell audiences that he shared their prejudice against social and political equality with blacks. He also provoked their fears by alleging a conspiracy by Justice Taney, Presidents Pierce and Buchanan, and Senator Douglas to introduce slavery into northern states. And yet at the same time, Lincoln also provided propaganda that did not pander to, but promised to change public discussion by appealing to what he called the better angels of our nature. He rejected Douglas's unqualified racism. He insisted that blacks were equal to whites in their right to keep what they had earned by the sweat of their brow. Lincoln also showed that that belief lay deep in the experience of all Americans by describing and proclaiming the abiding relevance of the Declaration of Independence as promise that all men are created equal. But for all the manipulation and control he exercised, for all the persuasive arguments he utilized, 
Through all the shaping and building of union support and morale, Lincoln did not succumb very often to the dark possibilities of propagandizing. And what is remarkable is that during the war, the time when propaganda historically has become most crude and vicious, Lincoln's messages chose to inspire and not to frighten the public to act. He never rallied Union sentiment to hatred of the Southern enemy. He never targeted rebel leaders as villains. He never pictured the enemy as inhuman or deserving of death. With few exceptions, his propaganda essentially appealed to the best qualities of the nation, and as he faced the prospect of peace and the beginning of his second term, Lincoln argued that the North shared Southern guilt for slavery and hence was similarly deserving of God's punishment, the war. Healing persuasion indeed. Surely political calculation can explain some of this reconciling language. The need to restore the Union, the presence in the North of thousands of people born in Dixie. But there was also, I believe, something else. A serious understanding that when leaders spoke to the people, the stakes were very high. Political leaders were not just candidates for office and then office holders. They were not just asking voters what they wanted and then giving it to them. They were opinion makers. They helped create people's ideas. They showed them how to implement their hopes into laws and into a future. They helped create the nation and the people and the government by the way they propagandized. They helped to create the nation, the people and the government by how they propagandized. Writing in August of 1858, Lincoln, preparing to debate Stephen Douglas, noted how powerful was the influence of the senator. This is Lincoln on Douglas. Judge Douglas is a man of large influence. His bare opinion goes far to fix the opinions of others. Besides this, thousands hang their hopes on forcing their opinions to agree with his. It is a party necessity with them to say they agree with him. If he shall succeed in molding public sentiment to a perfect accord with his own, what barrier will be left against slavery being made lawful everywhere? And Lincoln came from a Whig background which knew that there were both damaging and beneficial ways that leaders helped to create the nation and the people they hoped to lead. As one Whig newspaper wrote, put the case that the same multitude were addressed by two orators and on the same question and occasion, that the first of these orators considered in his mind that the people he addressed were to be controlled by several passions the order may be fairly said to have no faith in the people. He rather believes that they are creatures of passion and subject to none but base and selfish impulses. But now a second orator arises, a Chatham, a Webster, a Pericles, a Clay. His generous spirit expands itself through the vast auditory and he believes that he is addressing a company of high-spirited men, citizens. When he says fellow citizens, they believe him. And at once from a tumultuous herd, they are converted into men. Their thoughts and feeling rise to a heroic height beyond that of common men or common times. The second orator had faith in the people. He addressed the better part of each man's nature, supposing it to be in him, and it was in him. Thus Lincoln was thinking of responsibility and education when he spoke of public opinion. 
In this age, he said, in this country, public sentiment is everything. With it, nothing can fail. Against it, nothing can succeed. Whoever molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces judicial decisions. He makes enforcement of these else impossible. Lincoln had not learned very well the lesson promoted by modern campaign advisors that the people vote their fears. He kept demonstrating a belief that the American people might be appealed to according to the better angels of their nature. Trained by decades of experience as politician and lawyer, propelled into the public arena by efforts to define the nation's future according to its darkest qualities, Lincoln used his persuasive talents to create a society better than he found it. In war and in peace, he was usually the kind of propagandist the country profoundly and perhaps desperately needs. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. Paladin for a very interesting and provocative and insightful uh, presentation. And I'm sure all of us uh, enjoyed the presentation. And I have uh, something for Dr. Paladin. I have this uh, tankard for Dr. Paladin, which states uh, presented to Dr. Uh, Philip Shaw Paladin uh, for gallant service, uh, Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, on November 8th, 1996. So thank you very much, Dr. Paladin. Dr. Paladin has uh, stated that he's willing to uh, take some of your questions and have a discussion about uh, his presentation. Sure. Anybody have any questions? Yes. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Yeah, uh, what was Lincoln's formula for getting himself uh, elected to the presidency in 1860? And I think it was move to the right. <laughs> or move to the middle. The party was already the party of the most egalitarian sentiments in the North, the most viable politically egalitarian sentiments in the North. That frightened a large numbers of people for several reasons. They feared the breakdown of the Constitution, which the Constitution did protect slavery. They also were afraid of the disruptive force of ideas about equality that might be manifested in John Brown and John Brown-ness. And so, and the, those kinds of people were crystallizing, were aiming themselves toward a, the candidacy of William Seward. So how to make the Republican Party not be Seward's party was also a, required an effort on Lincoln's part to move and say, this is not Seward's party, for we, and Lincoln gives speeches condemning John Brown's raid, that we are the party of moderation, of conservative change, but we are the party who believes that slavery can be placed in the course of ultimate extinction. So he has to move, move to the right from the public image of the Republican Party as too strongly an egalitarian party. And of course, that's just what, that's just the corner that the Democrats were trying to, to paint the Republican Party in as a party of racial extremism. 
So his, his tactics are to move himself to the center and be the most available candidate. And people knew that the, uh, if they carried, what, Pennsylvania and Illinois, after what they had done in 1856, Lincoln was, the Republican Party was going to elect the candidate. So the fact that Lincoln is from Illinois is a major factor already operating uh, in his favor anyway. So, and to the extent Lincoln could manipulate the whole thing, I don't think he could do that. But certainly in the speeches he gave, he does move his party toward the center so it doesn't look like the extreme party. Okay. Yes, sir. Aren't we over uh, looking the fact, too, that I believe the question was about 1864, that Lincoln was not in 1864 the candidate of the Republican Party? He was, in fact, the candidate of the Union Party, yeah. a new ad hoc party made up of Republicans, war Democrats, and other folks. Yeah, yeah, the question was 1860, as I understood it. 1864 is a little different. First of all, you have to get rid of Salmon Chase, and then Chase helps him. Uh, yes, sir. Wasn't Lincoln more articulate than any of his rivals? I think the answer to that must be yes. Although Seward can be pretty persuasive and pretty eloquent, and then Douglas can give a really good speech, and I don't know what uh, Breckinridge is oratorical talents were. I think in a being able to define the issues in the, mo in, in the most positive way, Lincoln has, has the advantage. Because he has this vision. I mean, he has thought out a vision that allows him to incorporate ideals that people treasure, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Union. And he has created a vision for the Republican Party that includes all those things and uh, in a positive way. And that, that, I think, is the major thing he does, which is to say that the Declaration of Independence is not just a wild-eyed formula for, a, for a, a, an extreme idea that all men are created equal. He says that idea is built into the Constitution and if we follow the constitutional system out, if we allow it to work, the ideals of the Declaration will be achieved. So it, he domesticates the potential extremism of the Declaration of Independence by wrapping it into the Constitution and saying the Constitution will bring this result as well. So you can have your constitutional cake and eat the Declaration of Independence too to scramble a metaphor hopelessly. He is a very good professor uh, tribe to generations of Americans in, in that sense. That the Constitution does lead to equality, Lincoln says. Yes, sir. From the quiz, when Lincoln says Salmon Chase is 150 to another person's 100. My answer to that is, I don't know either, but the man who knows is there. <laughs> yes. 
And does Lincoln, if Lincoln survives, does he produce a more positive result out of Reconstruction? Have I recast the question right? Yes, through his manipulation of public opinion. I think the manipulation of public opinion would have sort of continued in and of itself as Lincoln responds to general public questions. Uh, more importantly, behind Lincoln's rhetoric is a vision of politics which would have never allowed him to do the astoundingly stupid things that Vice President Andrew Johnson did. Vice President Johnson, I mean, when he became president, attacked by name in public the most important congressmen and senators in Congress. Now, you may think these guys sleep with snakes and have carnal knowledge of various beasts, but you don't say it in public because you kill yourself. You don't make, an, make a deal with the, one of the more important United States senators so that he believes he's got a deal on the Civil Rights Bill of 1866 and then blow it up in his face, which is exactly what Andrew Johnson did to Senator Lyman Trumbull, who thought he had worked out a deal on the 1866 Civil Rights Bill. Lincoln's attitude toward politics is very different than Johnson's attitude toward politics, is that Lincoln does not take politics personally. Abraham Lincoln's individual, Abraham Lincoln the individual, is not at stake when people are arguing about politics. Johnson takes it personally when people disagree with him. And Lincoln says, I've never found a way to do politics and make it personal. So Lincoln separates the political and the personal. After Sar Senator Sumner had torpedoed a reconstruction plan for Louisiana that Lincoln had going. Shortly thereafter is the inaugural ball of 65, in 65. Charles Sumner is the man who leads Mary Lincoln into the inaugural ball. Lincoln asked him to do that, something that Andrew Johnson would never have done. So there's a sense that this is not personal, that I, one of Lincoln's favorite sayings is, I believe in short statutes of limitation in politics. Once it's over, it's over, and this is not personal. And that, I think, is behind the, the general rhetoric which sees the constitutional system in a very positive way. The system works well, and we need to respect that, and we need to respect the other people who are involved in it. So that's a sort of a long answer to your question. When we speak of Lincoln's eloquence and his ability to mold public opinion, aren't we giving more credence to it than it really deserves? Because in the period of the 1860s, how many people really heard uh, what Lincoln said and, and also even read what he said because their opportunity to read it is really dependent on the newspapers who reported mm -hmm. and how they slanted. Uh, very few people would hear him speak. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't even address the convention, which was not done in those days. Mm -hmm. So how, what were his methods of, 
of influencing the people who don't hear him and who read what he says as slanted by others. They read what he said in by the hundreds of thousands in the, in the newspapers of the time. And while those things are slanted, they're not slanted completely. And many of his words do get published. And then the party picks them up and carries them out. So the only the people who are carrying out the, the Lincoln's ideas are not just Lincoln, but the spokesman for the Republican Party. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that every person turned on their TV and heard Lincoln uh, speak. They didn't have that degree of communications. But I think Lincoln spoke to the people whose influence mattered and who were in the position to make decisions. And sort of the ideas behind his words uh, filtered down into creating a party policy, which uh, had that same sense of uh, seeing, appealing to the better angels of pe people's nature. I think they don't have the same exact meaning, but I wouldn't want to hold it to a standard that unless they got it 100% right, it didn't have the meaning. It didn't convey the power of the idea. I, th I think it did convey the power of the idea. I want to uh, once again thank uh, Dr. Paladin for an excellent presentation. Uh, on December 13th, we have our next meeting when uh, Robert E. L. Crick will talk about the Confederate staff. Until then, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>